0: If you would, um, get your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. If you are using one of the Bibles uh, that's in front of you there, that's on page 574. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Heavenly Father, we uh, stand before you humbled by your word. Lord, we, we love the way that your word examines us, that it, it looks deeply, it peers deeply into our hearts and calls us um, to your side calls us to cling to you, that shows us our desperate need of you, and that our only hope is in full and total dependence on you. Lord, as we consider your words today, I pray that we, your people, we, your church, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, would be called, and that we would hear your voice calling us to cling to holiness, Lord God. Lord, your word says in the book of Hebrews, without holiness, no man, no woman shall see the Lord. So God, we long to see you. We long for our eyes to be open, that we could see the train of your glory filling this place this morning. And so God, we pray that as we look at your word, Lord, that that there would be a resounding trumpet blast that would call us to stand at attention and and long for and cling to and embrace and run towards the holiness of the Lord today, Lord God. God, as always, help me, Lord God. I am frail. I am weak, Lord God. I am completely without understanding. I stand mute before your word. And Lord, I ask you that you would do me the grace, Lord God, of opening my mouth and filling it with only what you would say to this people and not a single syllable otherwise, Lord God. I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. I stand in total need of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. I watched Rachel this morning, and I have one thought that fills my mind. Man, I wish I had some talent. I I, I don't even really care what. I wish I was a world champion bubblegum blower or something, but I want to do something when I watch her do that. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that awesome? So here we are. We find ourselves back in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are kind of making it through. We're three-fifths of the way through the book now. I've told you over and over again that Paul has spent the first three chapters primarily um, in, in, in something that is, is introductory. He's, he's kind of catching up with the people of the city of Thessalonica, the, the church that he founded there. And he's been rejoicing for three chapters that the Thessalonians have continued in their faith in spite of the persecution, severe persecution that they've been undergoing. But now as I promised you, he begins chapter 4 by picking up right where he left off when he was with them. He instructs them about how to live in Christ now that they're following him. Christ is, has become their everything and so he says there are some there are some things you need to know if you're going to be a follower of christ and he begins interestingly enough by urging the thessalonians to be distinct from the world around them from the culture around them by pursuing holiness i want you to when you read the books from uh from you know the the book of romans all the way to the to the the book of philemon i want you to notice something that paul places a very high value on the evidence of a transformed life he he doesn't emphasize merely believing a set of facts about jesus christ and his work on the cross about his resurrection although that's very important but rather paul is always through all of his writings he's adamant that our belief, that if we say we believe that set of facts, it absolutely must impact the way that we live our lives day to day. You can see it right here in this passage that Paul read for us. You can see it in the way that he refers to Jesus Christ in in this passage. He doesn't simply call him Jesus, or he doesn't refer to him as our Savior Jesus. He, He says this, he says... He, he says, "We ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus." And after that, when he he, he says uh, what they were the instructions that they gave them when they were there, he says that they gave them that instruction through the Lord Jesus. Now, Lord in the Greek is an interesting word. It's it's kurios, and kurios is a word that literally means master. And though this is kind of offensive to our modern day 21st century sensitivities, the word literally means slave master. Paul is saying, please don't miss this, especially if you have kind of a a, a American Western, you know, Jesus is all about me kind of mentality about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ claims the sole right of how to use you, how to reward you, how to discipline you, how to train you. In other words, to call Jesus Lord acknowledges that Christ Jesus possesses you as his own property. Literally, his slave. In fact, over and over in the Bible, Paul refers to himself as the slave of Christ. When Paul says that they ask and they urge you in the Lord Jesus He's pleading for something that is higher. Listen to me, because sometimes we have such a low common denominator of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. He's pleading for something higher than that the Thessalonians just keep the rules of their new religion or that they clean up their act or or that they can just boast of being good little boys and girls in the church. He's pointing to Jesus and he's reminding them that Jesus died... Not just to forgive them, not just to save them, but to purchase them. He's saying Jesus died to redeem you, to own you. He didn't just say that Jesus died to forgive their old corrupted life so they could live however they please. He means that Jesus ought to get what Jesus paid for. Furthermore, when he says he gave them instruction through the Lord Jesus, he's saying that by speaking to them in the authority that Jesus has granted him as an apostle, he is speaking with the voice of Jesus himself. Don't miss that fact. When he's saying we gave you instruction through the Lord Jesus, he was saying it was as though Jesus were speaking to them directly. Now this is important. Last week on Twitter, a well-known Bible teacher stirred up some controversy. It happens way too often. By implying that Paul's words in the Bible were somehow inferior to Christ's words in the Bible because Paul was just a man where Christ was the Son of God. But let me tell you something. That is a terrible, terrible way to think about the authority of Scripture. Are you hearing me? It's a terrible way to think about the authority of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says that all Scripture, everybody say all Scripture. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God Himself, meaning that God literally breathed all Scripture into existence without varying degrees of authority based on who in the Bible said it. So remember this, remember this, no matter what you read in the Bible, no matter who said it, if the Holy Spirit made sure that that instruction was preserved in Scripture, it has the authority of Jesus. Whether Paul said it, Peter said it, Jude said it, Moses said it, doesn't matter, it is Jesus speaking to you. So what is it that Paul is asking them and urging them to do in the Lord Jesus? His words are that as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, here's the key part, that you do so more and more. Paul is imploring them to continue to intentionally grow in holiness. They've done well since they believed, but now they must continually seek to grow into the image of Christ with greater and greater earnestness. And this, my friends, is great counsel for us all. So many times we kind of hit a plateau and, and we, we, we kind of judge ourselves as good enough or, or holy enough. We're not as bad as the next guy. We may not be as good as the next guy, but we're kind of there somewhere in the middle. And Paul says to do this, to grow in holiness more and more. Paul says that when they were together, they were given some rules. Raise your hand if you just love the rules. <laughs> He says they were given rules. He says you received from us how you ought to walk. If they were to be going to be associated, if this group of people in Thessalonica were going to be associated with Christ Jesus, there are certain things that they should be doing and there's other things that they should refrain from doing. And when we talk about the rules of Christianity, it's been my experience that there are two extremes In regarding the rules that we tend to gravitate towards, and that I would add that all believers should avoid these two extremes. The first extreme is a big word. It's called antinomianism. Now, don't worry about that word. I'm not going to ask you to memorize that word, but the word antinomianism comes from two Greek words. The first word is anti, which means against. You guys are familiar with that one. And the other one is namos, which which means law. So antinomianism literally means Against the law. And and to be in antinomianism is to embrace the false teaching that because we're saved by grace through faith, which nobody here would argue, we are saved by grace through faith, that there that there are no more moral laws that God expects Christians to obey. That's what an antinomian believes. However,. You should know before you embrace that position that there are several New Testament passages, including the one we read this morning, that show us that that is not the case. God still expects us to grow in holiness. He expects our behavior to reflect his holiness and his glory more and more every day. But before we crack open antinomianism, we should also mention the other extreme. I know there's another extreme on the other side of this equation. It's called legalism. While antinomianism teaches that, that your obedience to God's word may not matter at all, on the other side, legalism teaches that it's all that matters. That Your, your obedience, your perfection in law-keeping is all that matters. It says if you want to keep God from smiting your behind with locusts, that you better keep all the rules well. Both extremes, antinomianism, it's easy for me to say, on one side and legalism on the other side. It makes you, legalism makes you responsible for your righteousness without any regard for the work of Jesus. And even if a legalist says they're trusting Jesus, their actions often prove that they're just trying to work their way into heaven by their own good deeds. And this working for your own righteousness, hear me look carefully. That's where you're at. This working for your own righteousness is exhausting. And it's utterly, completely doomed to failure, as anyone who's ever been delivered from that frame of thought can tell you. But the real danger of both antinomianism and legalism is that they both have just a tiny spoonful of truth mixed in with the lie. Let me demonstrate. Legalism sounds true because God does demand perfection. He says in the scriptures, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He also commands us in both the Old and New Testament to be holy as he is holy. So you you look at legalism, you say, well, I better keep the rules because of those demands for perfection and the command to be holy. But legalism Fails in that it fails to recognize the only source of the perfection that God demands from us is never found in us. That's right. the, the the perfection that God from His throne is demanding that you produce is not produced in you. Never comes from you. We're incapable of that standard. I pray with all of my heart that if you have not figured out that you are incapable of that standard, I pray this is your day, that you find that out. Jesus, and Jesus Christ alone, is the fountain of our perfection. He's the one who gives it to us. He's the one who applies it to us. He's the one that makes it real for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably my favorite verse in all of scripture, says, for our sake he made him to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, and I would add only in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. He is the fountain of our perfection. On the flip side, antinomians rightly believe that the work of Jesus has, believed, has delivered us rather, from both the burden and the curse of the law which the Scripture actually states. But what they don't understand is that God, in delivering us from the burden and the curse of the law, has never, anywhere in the Bible, ever lowered His standards. Because of the cross, He's never lowered His standards. All He's done through the cross is fulfill the obligation that you and I had towards the law. And once again, the source of that fulfillment was not in us; it was in Jesus. He fulfilled the obligation, the debt we had to the law through Jesus Christ. And more than that, although he still, it's still, he is calling us to holiness, he changes our motivation from obedience from fear of punishment. See, we used to obey because we were scared to death if we didn't that we were in big, big trouble. Right, right. But what Jesus Christ has done through the power of the Holy Spirit is he's changed our our motivation for obedience from fear of punishment to the love of God. Wonderful transformation that's taken place. I don't obey God out of fear, I obey him because I love him. And Jesus said, If you love me, you'll what? He said, You'll keep my commandments. I love this passage. This is such a beautiful passage. And and the problem with this passage, two verses, the antinomians all get the first part right. They wouldn't argue with this first part at all. But Ezekiel in prophesying the coming of the Messiah says this, puts these or says these words for God, he says, and I will give you under this new covenant a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's, all of that. Every antinomian in the world would agree with that's what the gospel does. But the verse isn't done. Verse 27, after he gives us a new heart, a new spirit, listen to what he says. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules that's what the gospel does for us it changes our heart because without a heart change we could never obey anything but then once we embrace the gospel god sends his spirit and he actually draws us not away from or to ignore the law of god but to embrace it as the beautiful wonderful gracious thing that it is reflecting god's holiness So God still expects us to walk in the way of holiness. But we reach our goal not by trying as hard as we can to be so good that we can stay out of hell. But we obey God now from a renewed heart of love, guided by the Holy Spirit into right and fruitful living. And this is the change. This is what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. This is the change that the gospel and only the gospel brings about. It's what Paul's talking about when he says that he not only told them how they ought to walk, if he'd stopped there, he wouldn't have done them any favors. Because when he told them how to walk, guess what? The Old Testament does the same thing. Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of those will tell them how to walk. That's the easy part. But he also told them that how they would please God. See what happened? Their motivation changed. It's not uh, these, De- 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 Deuteronomy 28, these, these curses will come on anyone who disobeys. That's not the point. The point is we have been redeemed by God, and so now my heart is to please God. And he says, I'm going I'm to show you how to do this, Paul says. As believers, we're motivated by our great love for Jesus and our gratitude for the mercy that he's poured out so liberally on us that we live in a way pleasing to God. We are not any longer avoiding punishment. If you are a Christian and you have have a, a, a punishment mentality and everything you're doing is to avoid God's punishment, you have not gotten the gospel yet. Punishment was taken care of for you if you are a believer on the cross of Jesus It was placed on Jesus. All the punishment for all the sin in the world was placed on Jesus. There's nothing left for you. It's not your motivation for righteousness and holiness. But what we're doing now is we are pursuing the one we love. When I was trying to win the heart of Ginger, I didn't do the things that were offensive to Ginger. I do it now all the time, but I didn't then. I've already won her, so... I didn't do that. I, I tried to take her to the places she wanted to be and say the things she wanted to hear and do everything. And why? Because my heart was overflowing with love for her. And a heart that's overflowing for love with God will, will resist being displeasing to God. Amen? I love this quote from Paul Washer. A friend of mine gave it to me this week. He says, A lot of people think that Christianity is doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to go to heaven. And Paul says, no, that's a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed. They have new affections. God changes what you love and He changes what you hate. We are not suffering... The loss in Jesus, we're not suffering the loss of all the fun things we used to get to do as sinners. We are joyfully walking in the freedom not to sin that Christ has provided us through the cross, that your, your attitude when you become a believer in Jesus, truly become a believer, it, your attitude towards sin changes. You begin to think like Jesus thinks and hate the things. It doesn't mean that any of us are perfect and that we don't sin, but our attitude towards our own sin hates it. I don't try to look for new opportunities to have other opportunities to sin. I try to avoid and be free from and, and put to death the sin in my life. Because I hate it. And so we, we, we do this. We, we, do the, 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 we walk in this freedom not to sin that Christ provided through his cross. And we do it with the power that the Holy Spirit supplies to us daily. And even more, we do it joyfully. Out of an ever deepening well of love for our Savior. Paul deals a devastating blow especially to the misinterpretations of the antinomian when he says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is Jesus all about in saving you? He's all about making you sanctified. That's what his goal is. He's making you more like Jesus. The Greek word that's used for sanctification is found only ten times in the Bible. And it's interesting because it's translated with two different English words, five once and five the other time. Five times it's it's translated as sanctification, like here, and then five times it's translated as holiness. What can we deduce by that? That the will of God for you is to make you holy, which is what what the, the word sanctification means. And Paul as he does so often in his writings, centers this call for holiness on the sexual purity, the sexuality of the Thessalonians. When he says, abstain from sexual immorality, he says that God's will is for you to be sanctified. So the first step for you Thessalonians in doing this is to abstain from sexual immorality. Although, and, and we see this all throughout the New Testament, there are many types of sin that Paul deals with elsewhere, greed and, and um, um, disobedience to parents, all kinds of things. He, he, he deals with those things. Uh, th- his focus here is on the sexuality of the Thessalonians. Now, why would he do that? Why would he only focus on this one area of sin? Well, there's probably at least at least two reasons for that. First, we've talked about this before, the Roman world was notorious for its use of every type of perverse sexuality to oppress and dominate other people. And that would applied to women. It applied to slaves. It applied to conquered foes. All of them were subject to being sexually assaulted, sexually humiliated. And additionally, many of the rites of pagan worship from which these Thessalonians have been saved out of involved all kinds of misuse of sex, including like temple prostitution and other such things. And very similar to how the West, the Western world is being transformed before our very eyes, the Thessalonians occupied a world where the abnormal was celebrated as normal. And the perverse was celebrated as beautiful and good and virtuous. But Paul, through the, through the Lord Jesus, was calling these believers in Thessalonica to be distinct from the world, for there to be a clear, obvious difference between them and the world. And this, brothers and sisters, this is the hallmark of holiness, to be distinct. In fact, the word holiness literally means set apart. When you're holy, you're not mixed in. Anybody awake this morning? When you're holy, you're not mixed in. When you're holy, you're set apart. Second, Paul, more than just the, the culture of ancient Rome, Paul understood that the, the, this fact. And please hear me. No matter what you think of yourself and your own morality, listen to me. Paul understood the fact that since we are all sexual beings, every one of us, and we are all sinners, that there's a collision that inevitably happens. At some level, every single one of us are sexual sinners. Every single one of us. Neither modern people nor ancient people have any claim to moral superiority in this area of our lives. None of us do. And the spectrum I, I recognize is vast. But we are all sexually broken in one way or another no matter how moral you may appear. And this applies to the single person who has this unhealthy obsession with sex, to the married person that has absolutely no interest in sex, to the one drawn into various perversions, all of us have much baggage from which we need to be redeemed. So Paul gives us several reasons to walk in holiness in the area of our sexuality. First, he says that each one of you know how to control His own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul lists self control as a fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in someone's life. And he says, Here, that the operation of that fruit, when we are walking in the fruit of self-control, he's saying that it results in increased holiness in our lives and honor toward the Lord that we love. But here he also contrasts the Spirit's fruit of self-control with the out-of-control sexuality of the Gentiles, who have absolutely no relationship to God. Once again, as I said earlier, he's saying that Christianity should absolutely make us different from, though not superior to. See, what what people hate about Christians oftentimes is that when God is drawing them into holiness and they have a conviction for holiness, then they begin to look down their nose at everyone else who isn't there yet. Listen, you're only one of the drowning guys that is already in the lifeboat. That's all you are. You were drowning too. So quit so quit thinking that you're some special person because you made it into the lifeboat and throw out the stinking life preserver to someone else. Get them in the boat with you. Don't look down your nose. So Christianity should make us absolutely different from, although not superior to those who are perishing in the world. And the difference is stark. The difference between us and those who are perishing in the world should be as different as a dead, rotting corpse is from a living, breathing person. It should be that distinct. No one comes up on a half-decomposed body and says, yeah, I'm pretty much like that. No one does that. There's a clear difference between that which is dead and that which is alive. And that should be the difference between those who are following Jesus Christ. If people are looking at your Christianity and you look dead, And you look rotten, and you look like you're just stinking just as bad as those who are dying in the world, you ought to really question your Christianity. You really ought to. I'm not saying that to judge you, I'm saying that to plead with you to come and repent and let Jesus draw you into his holiness. What is it about you and I this morning? This is a question. I don't have an answer for it. What is it about you, and I'm talking about in the practical aspects of your life, that makes us really different from the world? If someone, not yourself, because we have a way of deceiving ourselves, were to look at you, and you were to have someone that you could ask honestly and say, how am I different from the world? And they had the guts to be honest with you. What would they point out? Would they point out anything? Is the way that we act... Or the things that we value, are those things any different at all from the world? If not, as I said earlier, please hear me as a warning, it, it may be an indication that you do not belong to Christ at all. And at the very least, if you claim to belong to Christ, such a discovery should make you beg that God would mercifully grant you the gift of repentance. Second, Paul says that we should walk in sexual purity, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Paul appeals to this fact that our unredeemed sexuality, and you may have never considered this, is actually a crime against our brothers and sisters in this family we call the body of Christ. It's a crime against them. Now, this is certainly true when two Christians engage in sexual immorality together, but I don't think that this is only what Paul is talking about here. Let me illustrate. There is a nationally known preacher, big, big name, that has been fired from two separate churches in the last four years after seducing women in his ministry. Women, not a woman, women in his ministry. But guess what? In the last year, in the last 12 months, he started a brand new church. And he's beginning to get invitations to speak at conferences. You know why? Because he's really, really sorry. Now I want you to know, if I sound like I'm being harsh, that this man can be, listen to me, he can be and hopefully has been forgiven by God for these sins. He can be. And I hope he has. But listen to me, as someone who occupies the same place he does, in the same job, this man has no business being in the ministry ever again. Listen to me. Why? Because Paul says that those who oversee the church should be beyond reproach, and he has brought tremendous reproach upon the body of Christ. His, his crimes, his sins were splashed across headlines, and now it looks like a massive hypocritical mockery to the, to the cross of Jesus that he's just jumping right back in. He's brought tremendous reproach on the body of Christ. And in so doing, listen, this is what Paul's saying. He sinned against his brothers and sisters in Christ. Not to mention his ex-wife and his children. He should repent. This is what he should do. He shouldn't be some kind of shunned outcast, but he should repent. Plug into a Bible-preaching church. Humble himself. And he should not use his sin as a springboard for another attempted at celebrity. He shouldn't do that. For many people, it's far too easy to forget, please, I say this over and over again, hear me, it's far too easy for any of us to forget that our sin is never personal. Your sin has a ripple effect on all the people that you love. Sexual immorality in the church harms, it sins against your brothers and sisters by bringing them reproach. But more than that, it may also cause harm to them by causing them to disbelieve in the power of the gospel to change people's lives. And more than that, sadly, your sexual sin may give them justification to sin in similar ways. Thirdly, Paul says that we should avoid sexual immorality because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, after reminding us to be distinct and urging us not to sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul points to God's justice as a deterrent to sexual immorality. And he warns them, he says, solemnly. And in so doing, he devastates another antinomian position regarding God's holy law. The Bible teaches us That in many places, it teaches this lesson in many places, that there is a promise. How many of you love the promises of God? You may not like this one. There's a promise for judgment for those who are adrift on a sea of their own passions. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, listen to me carefully. Right here, right now, in this very room, there are many among us who struggle with your sexual purity. And you love Jesus. And you struggle with it. Your internet search history shows that you've been just immersed neck deep in pornography. Some of you are struggling with same sex attraction. Some of you go to work every day and you have affairs of the mind and heart and some of you may be even slipping into affairs of the body and you've and 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 this sin has just wreaked havoc in many lives and even right now while you're sitting there and you're feeling the conviction of the holy spirit it's wreaking havoc in your life and it's going to continue to do so until you truly repent. But I want you to understand this. This is not a, if you ever have a naughty thought that, you're, that, you're, that Jesus is done with you. That's not what I'm saying at all. I, this is what I want you to hear. Please pay all of your attention to me right now. There is a huge difference between, between someone who is daily repenting and hating their sin more and more and fighting for a God-pleasing holiness and someone who is giving up to every lustful impulse, even looking for new opportunities to satisfy every dark craving. One of you, the one who is repenting and seeking the holiness of God, you have hope. You have hope. You can be free. You can be delivered. You can, be, you can finally put that behind you. And the other one of you who's hiding and embracing the darkness, you are marked for destruction. Do not play. Do not play with the fire of hell. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, today is the day to come clean to be honest, to repent, to fall on the mercy of God that you might be saved. Why would you die in your sin when today you could not only be forgiven, but you can be healed of your backsliding and you can be delivered of your slavery to those ugly sins by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ? Why not today Fourthly, Paul says, God has not called us for impurity, but he's called us in holiness. When the Bible says that God has not called us for impurity, it means that God's intention all along was not to allow us to stay just like we were when he found us. Aren't you so glad of that? Oh my goodness. I'm so glad that he wouldn't just sit idly by and let me stay like he found me. Sometimes we, we think that the only difference between us is that instead of anything happening in our personal holiness, now all the difference is that we, unlike some others, may have a ticket to heaven. But rather, instead of just God handing us a ticket to heaven and ignoring what's hidden deep in our life, now He makes us into a holy, living reflection, a living reflection, reflecting to all the world His holiness, His godly character. But I want you to notice, can we get that last verse up on the screen just one more time? I want you to notice a little word play here. Yeah, now watch this. Look at this verse. And notice a little word play here. Had you or I written this verse, look at what it says. It would have said, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. But it doesn't say that. It says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. What do you think that's all about? I think what it means is that God isn't calling you to make you a slave of Christ so that you can work in the fields for your own holiness. Help me out. It means that God hasn't called us to work hard, sweating bullets, to try and be something that he can appreciate, that he can claim, or that he died so we can keep working hard to somehow, someday, hopefully, fingers crossed, become holy. What it's saying is, please, oh, here, this is so beautiful. He's saying that he's called us in holiness. It was whose holiness? It was his holiness, and he called us into it. It means that we're invited to enter into his perfect holiness, not building our own faulty faulty version of it, but called into his holiness. And this only happens by faith and surrendering to the very available power of the Holy Spirit that he's bestowed on us freely to see it through. It's in holiness. You're not called for holiness. You're not God to called so God could say, well, let's see if he can make anything of this walk, if she can finally get her act together. No. He called you to the holiness he already has. And all you got to do is walk into it. Paul ends this passage by saying these words, Therefore, whoever disregards this call for holy living disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, the antinomian who says that we don't need to worry about God's holy requirements anymore, he's not thumbing his nose at a religious establishment or at the demand of some clergyman, but that man is thumbing his nose at God himself. The legalist who says, I must be holy and I will do it on my own, is not impressing God with his sacrifice of blood, sweat, and tears. Oh no, he's defying the God that offers to free him, to free him by his grace to do what he would never be able to do otherwise. Both of them, antinomian legalist, both of them are disregarding the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He is the the spirit who convicts the antinomian's heart of the sin that he so readily ignores. He's the spirit who empowers the legalist to give up on his own efforts and trust that it's God who is working in him both to will and to do his good pleasure. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit morning, can I just ask you, I don't do this very often, this isn't kind of our, I know we have a lot of guests here today, and this isn't my normal song and dance, Um, but I do want to ask you this morning, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes for me, just everybody, would you just do me the favor of no one looking around, I want to respect everybody's privacy here, so just please keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I doubt there's very many people in here this morning that would have defined themselves by the terms that I use. No one came in here with a heart full of conviction needing to repent because you determined that you were an antinomian. Probably not many of you came in here under great conviction of your legalism. But as the word has been preached to you, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit He's encountering you and that He is convicting you and that He is, with His gentle, sweet way, not condemning you, but calling you into His holiness. There are many of you in this room right now who have habits. that, before this moment, your goal was just to keep the habit hidden. Your desperate hope was that you can just keep your wife from looking at the search history, get it erased fast enough. Some of you that hope that your your boss never finds out about how much time you spend in a bottle. Others of you that have wondered, you know, how you could get ahead and and make a name for yourself. Some of you have a heart filled with revenge against someone who's hurt you. And this is the morning. This is the morning. The Bible has this wonderful passage in it. It says, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow's decisions never get made. Have you discovered that? Never happens. Today is the day of salvation. So I want to ask you boldly, No one is looking around. I'm the only one. I'm watching right now. I'll call you out if you're looking around. But I want to ask you this morning, you can be honest enough to say, hey, you were preaching this morning, Mark, and the Holy Spirit just nailed me between the eyes. I'm playing games. There's habits that have to die. There are thought patterns that are are killing me. There are things that are so severe in my life, I, I literally have reason to question my faith in Christ. If that's you this morning. I'm going to ask for incredible boldness. Yeah, sometimes we, we hold back because we don't know what the second step of a request like this. Listen, I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to come down to the front. I'm not going to point you out in any way. I promise you that. But with those conditions if you can say hey I got to be honest with you things are not all right would you just lift up your hand as high as you can and let me see it this morning Come on have the courage Come on I just I don't want to prompt you or manipulate you but I don't believe you Raise your hand if if you're in that category Give you just a second or two more. The hope for you this morning you can put your hands down. The hope for you this morning that have raised your hands is to not have a churchy experience and walk out of this place and hope that things get better. The hope for you is not to try harder to not screw up the way you've been screwing up. The hope for you this morning is to run at a full sprint into the arms of the Lord Jesus. And to say, Lord Jesus, I put my hope and my trust in you. Lord Jesus, there's no secret. Let me tell you this. I keep mentioning internet search histories. Let me tell you something, you can delete them all day long, and Jesus Christ knows exactly what's on them. So the hope isn't just to try harder. You won't. You've proven, you know, the, dec- the definition, of the old definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and trying a different result. So what you've got to do is you've got to run to the arms of Jesus. And that starts, it doesn't finish, but it starts right here with a prayer to say, God. I need to be totally dependent on you. That means a few things. You can't hide from His Word. You can't hide from prayer. You can't hide from confession and repentance. Confession and repentance go hand in hand. I mention confession because some of you desperately need to find someone you trust. And, And let me just tell you, I don't know if you trust me or not, but I would love to talk to any one of you and get honest about what's going on. The Lord never delivered me from the things that I struggled with for years until I started talking about them. You need to do that. It's going to take guts. It's going to take guts. And I want to call you to that this morning. Because I'm telling you, that last verse is so powerful. The Holy Spirit is not asking you to white-knuckle this thing like I always say. God has given you the Holy Spirit who will empower you for holiness as you depend on Jesus Christ for your salvation. Some of you here need to, need to really just make a rededication of your life or consider the fact that you need to make a real, first, sincere dedication to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I place my trust in you. I've been depending on myself and look what it got me. I'm placing my trust in you to be my Savior, to be my Lord. And if you do that, please promise me this. I won't won't put you on the Facebook page or call you out in the service, but I want to know because I want to celebrate with you and try to help you to make it this time. If you make a rededication to the Lord or commit your heart to Him for the first time, please let me know. And I would love for you to become a part of of a community that can help you to, to succeed and to make it. So I want to pray for you. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to ask our communion workers to come and prepare the tables. But I'm going to pray for you real quick. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the response in the hearts of the people that raise their hands, Lord. I thank you for the hope of repentance. Lord, there's no hope in the works of my own righteousness. There's no hope in me avoiding the perfect law of God. But, Lord, I, call, I, I just ask you, Lord God, to call us to real repentance. The Bible teaches that repentance is a gift that is granted by you. It's not something we decide to do. It's a gift. And so, Lord, by your grace, by your spirit, by your mercy, will you just pour out the gift of repentance on all of us this morning, Lord God? Make us able to do what we've tried to do so often and haven't been able to do. Make us able by your spirit to repent and to come before you and let you reign as Lord Supreme in our hearts to be the master, to be the one who owns us, who possesses us, and who can, who can uh, set us in any course that you so desire. Be that kind of God to us this morning, Lord God. God, I pray that you would just also bring the gift of courage for those of, uh, of uh, uh, these here that are Hearing me now, Lord, that need to make a decision to really follow you, Lord God, and not play games with you anymore, not try to rest in some religious identity that they've maybe had since a child, but really to become an obedient follower of Christ, to forsake everything and follow you and take up their cross. God, will you help them to make that decision this morning, God? God, for all of us, God, I pray that you would send the third gift, that you would send the gift of great conviction. That this week, Lord God, that it would be a it would be a hard condemnation, but it would be a sweet conviction that draws us into your holiness, Lord God, that we might reflect your beauty to this world. God, will you just open up that way, Lord God? When we're watching what we shouldn't watch when we're talking like we shouldn't talk when we're thinking like we shouldn't think lord god will you just convict us and call us to call on your power and walk in daily humility and repentance lord god that's all of us me everyone else in the room all of us lord god let us live that way we depend on you we cling to you raise up your church reap a harvest for your great name In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? I usually have a lot to say to you before we come to the table of the Lord, and I don't this morning. Except as we celebrate the brokenness of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spilling of His blood that bought us That purchased us, that bought us redemption, I want you to remember that. This is not, as I've said so often, a holy snack. This is not some uh, church routine that we go through. This is your opportunity to remember to whom you belong and what the price of that redemption was. It was a beating, it was a crowning with thorns, it was the piercing of his precious hands and feet with nails. There's a spear thrust in his side. And all of that so you wouldn't have to live the way you've been living. He did it to set you free. And today, if you believe that, chains will break. Shackles will fall off if you believe that. So I want to invite you this morning to the table of the Lord. If you're not yet a Christian... Will you at the very least come talk to me before you partake of these elements? We, we don't want to restrict anybody, but I'm telling you, this is just a, a novel routine if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus. It means nothing. It means nothing. So let's talk. Let's talk before you do that. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's for your lust. It's for your anger. It's for your greed and self-indulgence. This body is broken, so you don't have to be. This one's broken. You can be whole. He said, it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. There was an old covenant and it said, do everything right and you'll be accepted by God. And Jesus said, I'm writing you a new covenant in the ink of my blood that says, I did everything right. I did everything right. And if you want my righteousness, it's yours for the asking new covenant in my blood. He said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sweet Jesus, will you just bless our remembrance of you today? Will you call us sinners to repentance? Call us to lay down all of our iniquity, all of our wickedness at the foot of your cross and know that it is a, 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 the, the staining blood of Jesus that makes us absolutely clean. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're welcome to come to the table.